Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading will be from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. We'll be in chapter 15, verse 1 through 12, which reads, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I have preached to you, which you received on which I have taken, which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I have received, I have passed on to you as of first importance, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of our brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, to, as to the one I'm normally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not, was not without effect." No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? This is God's word. Please be seated. going to invite you to, uh, to pull out that, uh, that sermon outline that you find inside of the announcement sheet, and uh, you can use it to, uh, to take some notes. Maybe there's something that uh, is, is going to be said or some scripture that we're going to read that's going to impact your heart, and you're going to want to jot, jot it down and, and maybe think about it later this week or later this day. And uh, it's a way to, to kind of follow along with the train of thought and what it is that we're going to do this morning as, as we think about the resurrection. And one of the things that uh, we always do before we go to God's Word is to ask God to bless us. And so I'm going to ask you one more time to, uh, to bow your heads as, as we pray for God to bless us as we listen to His Word. Father, we're, we're mindful every day of the peace that has been established between you and us by the grace that comes to us through Christ. We are grateful for a cross and for an empty tomb and for His ascension to Your right hand in the heavenlies. We are grateful for love and compassion and grace and forgiveness and for a peace that is established between us. And for this, Father, we we give you praise and worship and thanks because it is out of your love and out of your righteousness that this hope becomes an ultimate reality for us. And so as we think about the events surrounding Jesus' cross and his burial and his resurrection, what we pray for in his name is that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear so that our hearts are changed and that we turn to face you in all of life. In this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
I think one of the most uh, difficult passages or actually books to interpret and to understand in the entire Bible is the book of Zechariah. But this prophet, even though there are some things that he says that are very, very difficult, there are some things that he tells us about the coming of the Messiah. And that the coming of the Messiah would not be as, as somebody riding in on a, on a war horse. It, it would not be somebody coming in with all of the laurels, but that he would come as a lowly prince of peace. And in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, we read these words. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See means open your eyes and, and behold. Your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a coat, colt, the foal of a donkey. And on that, that Sunday, before the cross of Jesus, the people are looking out to the east of Jerusalem and they see this figure riding down over the top of the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley. He's coming into the Golden Gate which brings him into the temple precincts. And with the raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11 still fresh on their mind and all of the words that they heard and the news that they heard about the giving of sight back to blind Bartimaeus in Jericho in Luke chapter 18, all of that fresh in their minds, they begin to joyfully praise God because of what they see in Zechariah chapter 9 coming true. The people see Jesus riding down the side of the mountain. And they begin to praise God. They use this word Hosanna, which is connected to some words which mean save. But during this period of time, it's really just a way of saying hallelujah, a different kind of way of saying hallelujah. It's a way of praising God. And they say, Hosanna to the son of David. This is the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry has begun. He goes back to the Mount of Olives that night, comes back in the next morning, Monday. What he sees happening at the temple really perturbs him. Here is this place where all the world is supposed to go and dis discover God, but it's been made into a den of robbers, and he cleanses the temple. And that gets everybody's attention, and he begins to teach, and he teaches all kinds of things about a grain of wheat falling into the ground and dying in order to produce many seeds. Tuesday and Wednesday roll around. He tells parables. He answers questions about paying taxes to Caesar, talks about the resurrection. Later in the day, he clarifies when he's asked out of all of the commandments, that are found in the Old Testament, of which do we find the greatest? And he clarifies that in Matthew chapter 22 by saying, you are going to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And a second one is like it, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself. Later in the day, he pronounces woes on that legalistic and mechanical religion of the Pharisees, that understanding of Judaism by the Pharisees, in which he says, you're turning your converts into a twice-fold child of hell than yourselves. And not only does he pronounce those woes on that Pharisaical Judaism, but he also observes with a tender heart, knowing about what lies ahead of him, 
and how that's going to change the world for people who trust God completely. He sees this old woman, this old widow, in the world by herself. And as she's in the temple precinct, she comes up to those trumpet-shaped temple uh, 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 coffers, and she puts the last two pieces of, of, of wealth two pennies into that, into that treasury. That same day, as they, they leave the temple, the disciples are looking around Jerusalem and they see the greatness of, 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 of the temple at, at that construction point that it was with, with Herod. And they talk about the greatness of the stones and how high the walls and how beautiful the temple in the Jerusalem city itself And Jesus begins to tell them that there's going to come a time, which would be about 70 A.D., in which there was not going to be one of those stones left on top of another, that the whole place would be raised to the ground. It would be the destruction of Jerusalem. And then in more cryptic language, he begins to talk about how later down the road, in which no date had ever been given to him, there would be a second coming of the Christ in judgment and all of that. Later that night, John gives a hint of what's happening in the heart of Judas. Satan has entered into his heart, and he begins to make the arrangements for the betrayal of Jesus. It's Thursday now. There are preparations for the upcoming upcoming Passover. But Jesus still has work to do because he perceives in his disciples that they still haven't gotten what all of this humility is all about. They've seen him right across the Kidron Valley on on the colt the foal of a donkey, but they still haven't gotten the part about lowliness and humility and that downward spiral into death on a cross just yet. Even though in Mark chapter 9 and chapter 10 and chapter 11, he has been explicit about what's going to happen to him. But now he witnesses them arguing over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And he knows that he still has work to do in their hearts, the men that he's going to trust the gospel with. And so he gets up from that table and he puts an apron around him and he gets a basin of water and he begins to wash their feet. Now they probably would not have had any problem with washing his feet, but he is the Messiah. Peter has rightly identified him as the Christ, the Son of the living God, up in Caesarea Philippi not too, too many months earlier. But now he is washing their feet and he says i'm giving you an example of how you are to love and to serve one another and as they they eat the meal that evening he teaches them the facts of the new covenant that he's establishing through his body and his blood the bread and the wine there is talk of betrayal questions out of their heart that they they ask, is it I? There's talk of all of the disciples falling away, except Peter doesn't want to accept that. He says, even though they may all scatter, I'll die with you. And Jesus says to him, Peter, Peter, relax and be humble and trust God because Satan has asked to sift all of you. And he teaches and they sing, and they pray, and then they cross the Kidron Valley from Jerusalem. They're back in the Garden of Gethsemane 
on the west side of the Mount of Olives. And there's more prayer, but this time it's personal and it's individual and it's alone prayer. And Jesus prays three times that the cup, the cup that he is destined to drink, would pass from him. But it won't be allowed to pass. He will have to drink it all the way. The betrayer, Judas, comes into the garden in an irony of ironies with the kiss of friendship, betrays the Son of Man into the hands of his enemies. There's the arrest of the Messiah. There are all of these accusations that are made by, by the, the Sanhedrin and the Jewish people against the Christ. It's in the courtyard there of the house of Caiaphas that Peter, who is ready to die with Jesus, can't even stand up beside him, and he denies even knowing the Christ to a young maiden who asks him. In the distance, a rooster crows three times. It's now early Friday morning. Pilate is being brought in. Later, Herod Antipas is going to be brought in. Judas sees what he's done. He kills himself. All of this leading up to Jesus' condemnation in front of the people. The begging for Barabbas to be released, but to crucify the most sensitive man who ever lived. There is his being beaten nearly to death and then being compelled to carry his own cross through the streets of Jerusalem to a place known as Golgotha, in Latin, Calvary. And it's there that the Romans nail Jesus to the cross and he asks that God forgive them for they know not what they're doing. And they lift him high into the air and they crucify him between two other condemned men. And people are walking by because it's a pretty famous crucifixion. And Luke says, and there they watched him. And there they watched him. There's a complete darkness that comes on the face of the earth. In an earthquake, the temple veil is torn in two. There are dead people coming up out of their graves and walking around Jerusalem. There's a point in which they try to help assuage some of his, his pain and some of his, his suffering. He will have none of it. He will suffer all of it. He cries out the beginning words of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There are instructions about his mother to a beloved disciple. And then Jesus, at about 6 p.m., sighs and dies. And at 6 p.m. on that Friday, the world would never be the same. On the first day of the week, the following Sunday, on a morning like this, early, the tomb of Jesus was found to be empty. Amen? Paul, along with all of the other disciples and all of the early Christians, would understand the gospel 
to be about primarily the events of those three days, that Friday and that Saturday and the Sunday. And going back to the first couple of verses that Jordan read for us just a minute ago, Paul reminds us, as he's reminding the church in Corinth, that it's by this gospel that you are saved if you hold firmly to the word that was preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared. Now one of the really interesting things to me, as, as, especially as I read through Luke's account of this, in Luke chapter 24, this resurrection first Sunday after the crucifixion, is how Luke, in all of the things that he could write about the death and the burial and resurrection, he chooses a couple of things that I think are of, primarily, of primary importance for us. And the first is what Luke wants us to know. As we look at the gospel as Paul preached at death, burial, and resurrection, in Luke chapter 24, the main, one of the main things, first things, that, that Luke wants us to understand is that something important happened. Christianity is based on facts. Christianity is not a philosophy. First and foremost, it is about facts of things that have transpired in the world. There are no ten steps to peace. There are no uh, you know, steps to nirvana. First and foremost, Christianity is based on what happened in history when God intersected our own personal human history. The word gospel itself means that it's a proclamation of this great life-changing event that has taken place in history. The gospel is, is, is not about a, a, you know, the, the website life hack. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it, all it is is just ways that you can make your life easier, way to, have, you know, to, to, to overcome depression, how to overcome uh, uh, office politics, how to, you know, how to dress for success. Christianity is based on events that have transpired in history, not philosophies. A way to think about it is this. Think of the ancient cities of, of the time of Jesus. I mean, there were, there were enemies about the, the way that the cities were constructed is to have a gigantic wall built around them. And when the enemy would come from the outpost, the word would come, there's a great enemy army coming, the great enemy that we don't know if we can defeat. We know that we are powerless. Everybody would get inside of the fortress. The king and his army would go out to meet the enemy. And inside of that fortress, you wait and you wait and you wait and you wait and you wonder and there's anxiety and you wonder, is this enemy going to be defeated by our king and by our representatives, by our people, by our, our heroes? Or is the, the enemy going to win and my life is going to continue in in slavery, and my life at some point is going to end in the cruelty of death. And there's that anxiety as you wait and you wait and you wait. And then all of a sudden, the rider comes running up to the gates and gives the gospel the good news that a victory has been won. That's what Paul was doing when he would go into all of these cities. He was going in and proclaiming something that had happened in history. And there are three things in this text that Luke gives us that have to be accounted for. The first is this. What do you do with the women? 
in the ancient world, beginning in Luke chapter 24, you have women of all people who are, who are the, the first witnesses of the resurrection. You know how women were understood in terms of their testimony in Israel. It was the same thing in ancient Rome. Their evidence giving in court, their oral testimony, was inadmissible. And if you're making up a legend, and if you're making up a philosophy in the first century, you're, in the ancient world, you're not going to include women. The women being mentioned, if this is what Luke's trying to do, is going to undermine the legitimacy and the plausibility of the story. So why does Luke include the women? It's because that's the way it happened. That's what happened. The women were the first to see it. And what about all of those names? Not just the women, but all those names. You have a Joanna. You have the mother of Jesus, Mary. You have Cleopas on the road to Emmaus there in Luke chapter 24. You don't have the other disciple named. There were two of them, but you do have Cleopas. Why do you have those names? The names are given as if to say, I'm Luke and I'm writing this, but you don't have to take my word for it. You can ask these people who live among us. You can ask these people about these events. Here are their names. You can find where they live in Jerusalem and around the world, wherever you might be, and you recognize these names. You can go and ask these people, and they will tell you, this happened. Why else would Paul tell us about all of the people that Jesus appeared to after the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15? Why would he do that? He appeared to Cephas. And then he appeared to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and the sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Have fallen asleep. Paul is saying, listen, go. There are 500 people. Most of them are still alive. You can talk to them. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also. He's saying, I saw him too. And at that time, they were still alive, and they could testify to the fact that the resurrection was preached as a fact by Paul, was, 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 who was clearly offended by the resurrection. The fact that he preached the resurrection, even though the resurrection proclamation at one time in his life, before he saw the Christ, was, was an offense to him, changed everything. When he saw the Christ, all of a sudden he, his life was transformed and he began to build up and to plant the church that he had tried to destroy. So not only do you have the women, you have all of those names, but you also have the fact that they worshipped at the very end, chapter 24, verse 52, it says that they worshipped him. Why would they worship him if it wasn't real? The Hebrews, one of the, the things that N.T. Wright in his book on the resurrection uh, points out is that the Hebrews were the last people on earth to worship a man claiming to be God. And that was the charge against him, right? What has this man done to deserve crucifixion? Pilate asked. And they say, he claims to be a God being a mere man. Except that they saw him after the resurrection. The empty tomb was not explained by resurrection if the body was stolen and was never seen again, which was one of the rumors that went around. The empty tomb is not explained by Jesus passing out 
only to be revived in the cool of the air of the tomb and then to get out and to walk around and to disappear. The resurrection is, 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 is claimed by those who saw him. That he was seen and the reality of the resurrection set in their hearts. So when they went to all of these cities preaching the gospel, they were preaching that something important has transpired in the world. But then number two, that something important was happening. When they came back, verse 9 of Luke 20, uh, 24, when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all of the others. And then at the end of the chapter, you are witnesses of these things. They began to talk about the resurrection. And not only talk about it as, as something that had happened in history, but they began to talk about what the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus really means. Number one, that there is now life after death. Everybody in the ancient world knew what resurrection meant. They didn't believe it, but they knew what it meant. It did not mean that somebody hit death and bounced back. What resurrection meant is somebody hit death and went through the middle of it and came out on the other side beyond death and beyond the reach of death. And one of the messages that they preached about the death, burial, and resurrection was that that was something that we could be a part of. That death has been destroyed, the great enemy has been destroyed, and that we too, following Christ through faith, can be a part of it. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 23, that Christ is the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. And the message was not only in our own life do we experience the fact that we are going to enjoy eternal life somewhere down the road, but it becomes an extraordinary life right now. Where because of the gospel and because of the defeat of death, there is another power that comes into your life that changes you into the human being you were always intended to be. And not only that, it meant that that extraordinary life was going to be brought to you by, by the king. And when Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, how did he talk about it? He talked about it in the future as these banquets and feasts and parties and celebrations. And the resurrection of Jesus meant that you were not going to miss any of it. That not only had this thing happened, something important had happened, and something is importantly happening now, but in the end, something is going to happen in the future. You know, when the Bible talks about Jesus, Jesus is the greater Adam who passes the test in the garden and defeats sin and death. And he's the greater Abel whose blood does not cry out for justice, but justifies people of faith. He is the greater Abraham who leaves heaven to go to the place God sends him in order to bless the people of the world. He's the greater Isaac, who is not nearly offered on the mount of God, but was sacrificed for the sins of the world. He is the greater Joseph, who goes to the right hand of God and forgives the ones who betrayed him in order to save them. Jesus is the greater lamb, who takes away the sin and the sting of death. He is the greater Moses, who leads people out of their enslavement to sin and leads to the place of promise. He is the greater rock, that when struck by the rod of justice, issues forth living water. He is the greater David, who slays the one giant who can slay us for all of eternity. He is the greater Esther, who risked his heavenly place in order to save his people. He is the greater King David, whose tomb is with us to this day, but the king who lives and will return one day.
And at the beginning of Luke's second book, the very next chapter he writes from Luke 24 to Acts 1, he ascends into heaven, and the angels, as they're intently looking up into the sky, there were suddenly two men dressed in white that say to the men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And so the gospel becomes this fact in which something has been accomplished in the world. And not only has something been accomplished, but there's something that's going on right now inside of human beings because of the death and the burial and the resurrection. And not only is that happening right now, but there is a future and a hope of that future where it becomes an ultimate reality for us that changes the way that we live now in light of who we will be in the future and in light of where we will be in the presence of God the end of time. There's so much to say about what the resurrection means. But what it means more than anything else is that your life can be different. Not only different with God, but different because of God. And I don't, I don't know what you're struggling with these days. I, I don't know what it is it's, that feels like it's being piled up and heaped up in your heart. What's causing you not to be able to sleep at night or whatever it might be. But there is a way to come out from that sense of guilt and that sense of judgment because there was someone who took all of that upon himself in love in order for there to be justice in the universe and at the same time for you to be justified. His sins were put on, our sins were put on him so that we can get his righteousness. And that's not just something that you put on a shelf until it's the end of life. That's something that affects the way that you live right now. And one of the ways that you do that is when you hear the words of the gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, and you believe them to be true, it causes you to want to change your life, to, to, to change directions where you recognize that you're not king because when you're king, your life goes astray. But when God is king, there is blessing, and there is, there is, there is blessing after blessing after blessing. And, and you recognize that, that you can't save yourself and that your sins need to be washed away. And so you participate, Romans chapter 6, in the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus in your baptism. Sins washed away. God's Spirit comes to live in your life. And from that point on, it is a different kind of life and a different trajectory knowing that death has been defeated. I don't know where you are this morning, but if that describes where you want to be we're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front, and we want you to come down and talk to them about how this can become a fact of your life. The death and the burial and resurrection become a fact of your life. And we want you to do it while we stand and sing. Come down to the front, talk to these shepherds that stand and praise God together. And the